Thank you very much indeed. Such a pleasure to be here with you today, and I'm very grateful for the invitation to stand in this pulpit or behind this podium or whatever it is and speak to you from God's Word. This is an enormous privilege, and I thank you very much indeed. When I received the invitation to come, I was told that I would be speaking at the final session in a series called Experiencing God's Love. Experiencing God's Love. I haven't had the opportunity that many of you have had of hearing this whole series or hearing individual uh, sections of it, but I was told that it, as this was the final session, uh, they would like me to talk about experiencing God's love in heaven. Well, uh, when, when I, I thought about that, I thought I may have a little difficulty talking about experiencing God's love in heaven because I haven't been there. <laughs> that does limit my experience. I've read about it. I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I've dreamed about it, but I haven't experienced God's love in heaven. Uh, as, as a matter of interest, how, how many of you, excuse me if I do this, but I can't see you otherwise, uh, how many of you have been to Antarctica? God bless you, I see that hand. <laughs> Is there another? <laughs> Not a very good response, I'm afraid. Just two of us, well, Jill, uh, my wife who's with me here, she's been with me to Antarctica. Um, so, if I were to talk to you about your experience of Antarctica, I think we'd have to agree that it is very limited. You've not, you've not been there. Now, it's quite possible that you've read the story of Endurance. Endurance was the ship that Sir Ernest Shackleton sailed in. It got trapped in the ice and sank, and they were trapped in, in, in Antarctica without any means of getting out. It's quite possible you've heard how they uh, floated on ice flows as the ice broke up in the springtime. Uh, and then the ice flows began to melt underneath them. So they took to the lifeboats and they sailed 450 miles by dead reckoning across the, some of the roughest uh, water in the world. You, you probably heard about all these things, but you haven't experienced it for yourself. I have. We had the opportunity of going to Antarctica. We were with some of our grandchildren on one occasion, and one of the, uh, they were, one of them asked us, where, where are you going next, Papa and Nana? Because they know we're always going somewhere, which of course everybody's always going somewhere. But we were always going somewhere different in their eyes. And so I said, we're going to Antarctica. And there was a loud silence. And then one little female voice said, why? <laughs> she, could, she could not dream of any reason why anybody would want to go to, uh, to Antarctica. And I said, well, for two reasons. One, it's there. And the other one, we haven't been there. And we've been to all the other continents, so we thought when we had an opportunity, we thought we'd go there. But I've got to tell you something. Thinking about going there, reading about going there, seeing movies about going there, 
is totally different from being there. And I can't explain to you what it's like to sit in that pristine area, totally unspoiled. Can't tell you what it's like to listen to the silence, silence that you've never, ever heard. It is almost palpable. To see the grandeur of the whole landscape, it's experiencing it. And here's my problem. If I'm to talk about experiencing God's love in heaven and I haven't been there, my wildest dreams can't be accurate. In fact, the Bible says this. It says, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has entered into human imagination the things that God has prepared for those of us who love him. So I'm afraid I'm having to start out by saying the subject that I've been asked to speak about, I can't speak about it today. You say, well, let's go home. It was a cold morning and we've been here long enough anyway. No, 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 please, please don't do that because I've had a good idea. I've had, I've, this, is, this is my idea. I can't explain to you what God's love is going to be, how it's going to be experienced in heaven because I haven't been there and you can't either. But I do understand that God's love is going to be the means of getting us there. And so whilst we can't talk about the destination, we can talk about the journey. That's what I want to do today. I want to talk to you about the journey that God in love has prepared for us in order that we might finish in that destination that is beyond our wildest dreams or beyond our most vivid imagination. Let me read to you from the Bible. It's an excellent book on the subject. I do recommend it to you. Romans chapter 8 a very famous verse, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestinated, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now that last little expression there, those he glorified. The word glorified is another way of describing what it's going to be for us when we finally arrive in the presence of God in his heaven and are welcomed there. We will be glorified, but I'm running ahead of myself. I want you to notice the stages in the journey that Paul talks about here. He says that God is busy working in all situations. It doesn't mean he's creating all situations, but he is taking all the situations that are happening 
and he is actively at work in them, and he is actively at work bringing about his eternal purposes, his eternal cosmic purposes, but his eternal cosmic purposes that are all birthed and presented to us in love. And this is what he's doing. It says, first of all, he foreknew. Then it's second, those, secondly, it says, those he foreknew, he predestined. And then it says, those whom he predestined, he called. And then it says, those he called, he justified. And then it says, well, actually, it doesn't say, for some strange reason, Paul leaves it out, but I'll explain that to you in a minute, if I remember, in a few minutes. It then says, whom he justified, he sanctified. And then it says, or it implies, and whom he sanctified, them he glorified. So that's what we need to talk about this morning. And we'll see something very special about this. Every one of these stages is predicated on love. So I can't tell you what it's going to be like to experience the love of God in heaven, but I can tell you a little bit about what it's going to be like experiencing God's love in stage by stage by stage by stage through which he takes us in order that we might be there. They do say, you know, that the big part of going to a destination is enjoying the journey. The more we enjoy the journey, the more we'll begin to recognize the wonders of what we anticipate in the destination. So let's take these one at a time. The first thing it says here is that those he foreknew. Those who he foreknew. That means those that he knew in advance. <laughs> now, just think about this for a minute. It is saying that in all things, God is working for the good for those who love him. Those people who love him, it then says, he already foreknew. So, in other words, we're dealing immediately with something that is beyond our ability to really grasp. I'll tell you why. We are creatures of time and space. We are created beings. We inhabit the created universe. One aspect of creation is time Another aspect of creation is space. It's all we know. It's all the arena. This is the arena in which we operate. We were born in it. We've lived in it. We will die in it. Time and space. What we've got to understand, of course, is there's something entirely different from time. It's called eternity. And eternity is where God dwells. Now, when God talked about himself with, with Moses, well, Moses said to God in actual fact, God, would you please tell me your name? You want me to go to Pharaoh and talk about you, and I don't even know your name. And God says, yes, I'll tell you my name. My name is I Am. I Am. <laughs> now, if, if Moses 
had been British, he would have said, I, <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> I beg your pardon. But Moses was not British, he was American. And so <laughs> he just said, huh? <laughs> you see, I, I'm completely bilingual. So uh, would you tell me your name? Yes, my name is I am. So I beg your pardon. So he said, all right, I'll amplify it a little bit further. I am that I am. That, that, was, the, that was the best Moses got from God at that particular time. But it's a wonderful name. It's, it's wonderful. If I talk about me, and I won't, but if I did, I would say last week I was... This week I am, next week I will be. I was, I am, I will be. God doesn't say that. God says last week I am, this week I am, next week I am. I'm just the same. I'm without beginning, I'm without end. I'm not dependent, I'm not contingent. I'm not lacking, I am complete and entire in myself. I am. I don't think of yesterday and today and tomorrow. I don't even think of a million years gone by and a million years to come. I don't even think of right now. I just am. I see the end from the beginning. Now, here's something that's going to be difficult for you to grasp. That in the mind of God, before the worlds were created... He already knew you. <laughs> don't, please don't ask me to explain it. I haven't been there yet. But this is where it all starts. This puts you in perspective. Now, I, I fully understand that you, you can't even remember the day you were born. It would be rather interesting to see how far back you can actually Remember, it's not very far, but I want you to know that the limits of your memory, the limits of your knowledge are determined by time and space, not God. And you will never, this side of eternity, be able to grasp what it means that before the worlds were made, you already, in the mind of God, he knew. Now, here's something fascinating. This word knew or to know in the Hebrew means a whole lot more than having information about or having acquaintance with. It means to know somebody deeply. It means to know them intimately. It is, means to, to know them so intimately that in some parts of the Old Testament, it will talk about a man meeting a woman and it doesn't go into details. And then it says, and he knew her and she bore a son. In other words, knowing people in the most deep, intimate way. But the word know goes even further, that before the worlds were made, in the mind of God there was a you, and he knew you, he knew you intimately, he knew you deeply, so intimately, so deeply, that he actually loved you. That's what it means when it says he foreknew you. Now that's going to raise a thousand questions in your mind 
and I don't have a thousand answers for you. If he's any help to you, Dr. N.T. Wright, one of the most highly regarded New Testament scholars at the present time, in writing about this from Romans chapter 8, talks about this, this mystery, the mystery of God's foreknowledge. And this is what he says. Even the Apostle Paul makes no effort to penetrate this mystery, either in this passage or anywhere else. So let me give you a tip. Don't spend a lot of time trying to penetrate it. Don't try to penetrate it, because it's beyond our human comprehension, because we think in categories that don't fit what we're talking about, and simply embrace it. Wouldn't it be a shame if God fitted beautifully into our brains? We would have a peanut-sized God. Isn't it wonderful that there are dimensions of him that are beyond our comprehension? And we don't just say, well, I'll check my intellect in at the door. It's simply saying, I will accept the limits of my intellect and realize that that's where God inhabits. But I need to press on. For those he foreknew, he foreknew in love. Now, here's a challenge for you. Try and figure out how you would actually experience that knowledge. Try and figure out how you would experience that knowledge. But we must press on. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. That means he planned in advance what he was going to do with these people that before the creation of the world, he also knew, knew intimately, knew deeply, and loved intensely. He said, what did he plan to do with them? Well, he tells us. He predestined that they would be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, one thing that we do know about the relationship of God the Father and his son Jesus is that Jesus was with the God in a bygone eternity when all this foreknowledge was going on. He was in the understanding of this, but then Jesus, on the Christmas time, laid aside his glory and assumed our humanity and became Emmanuel, God with us. And he went through childhood and he went through adolescence. He became a teenager. He grew into young manhood. When he was 30 years of age, he was baptized. And as he came up out of the water, the Father from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Notice the expression. This is my beloved son. Now this is what it says. That when those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In other words, in simple terms, God has predestined that those who love him, whom he loved before the creation of the world, those people he has predestined will finish up just like Jesus. And remember what God says about Jesus. This is my beloved son. So those he foreknew... 
he predestined. He foreknew them in love, and he predestines for them in love because he wants them to be just like his beloved son. Now, there's so much more we could say about this, but we must exercise phenomenal discipline and move on to the next thing. And here's the third thing. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, but whom he predestined, he also called. He also called. Now, what does this mean? Somebody said to me one day, I was in a restaurant in, uh, in Perth, Australia, just talking to some friends at the table, and there were lots of other little table people around, and uh, somebody, somebody got up from a table nearby and came over, and he, he, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, are you Stuart Briscoe? And I said, my mother told me I was, yes. <laughs> When you think about it, how do you know what your name is? <laughs> Somebody gave you a name, they didn't consult you, and they decided what to call you. And you've been stuck with that name. Well, maybe you got, did something about it and changed it, but there's a very real possibility. You've still got the name, they didn't consult you, they just gave it to you, and it is a means of identification. When it says that whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and whom he predestined, he called. It doesn't just mean he gave you a name as a means of identification. The idea of the call of Christ is that in a word spoken by God, there is innate power. Now, here's another mystery for you. Here's another mystery for you. Scripture says that it is by faith that we know that the heavens and the earth were created by the command of God. And when we think in terms of the call of God, we're thinking of a command that has inherent power in it. You remember Jesus one day met a paralyzed man. And this paralyzed man was lying there, and Jesus said, you really want to be better, <laughs> you remember? And the man argued a little bit and said, well, it was everybody's fault but his, etc., etc." And then in the end, Jesus says to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. It's very interesting. In that command, there was inherent power. And he got up, and he walked. Now, this is the call. Did you know that God has called you? This is what it says. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. What that means is that somewhere, somehow, in some way, God spoke to you. You didn't hear a human voice, but something came into your experience where you became aware of the fact that God was telling you what you needed to know and what you needed to do, and he was giving you the power in that information. He was giving you the power to respond to what you needed to know and what you needed to do. The call. And this is what it says in Scripture. Paul writing the epistle to the Romans by way of introduction, says, I'm writing to all in Rome, 
all in Rome who are loved by God and called. Loved by God and called. So you see, we, he foreknew us in love and he predestined us to be like his beloved son and then he called us in love. Now the way this call has come to us will come in two specific ways. It will come as an invitation. It will come as a loving invitation. It will come as an invitation of a compassionate God who is deeply concerned and deeply grieved about the human condition and who has taken an initiative to deal with the broken, fallen condition of the human race. And he says, come unto me, all those of you who are weary and heavy burdened, overpowered, and I'll give you rest. That's the call of Christ. But the call of Christ is not just an invitation. The call of Christ is also a summons. And that's best seen in the story of Simon Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter one day and he said, come. That's an invitation. Come. Come. But then he says, follow me. That's not an invitation. That's a summons. And then he says, come, follow me, and I will make you. And that's a promise. There's the call of Christ. And in it is inherent power to respond. This is what he says to the Romans. I am writing to those who are loved by God and called. So when God invites you, it's an invitation in love. When God summons you, it's an invitation to live in newness of life because he loves you. And when we think in terms of the net result of this coming and following him, there's the promise of a transformed life in love, more and more like Jesus. I can't can't tell you what love's going to be like in heaven but I can tell you what it's like on the way. And the nice thing about the journey is that the anticipation is all part of the arrival in the destination. So whom he foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. And then it says, and whom he called, he justified. Whom he called, he justified. Now, in Romans chapter 5, it talks to us a little bit about being justified. This is another huge, huge subject, but we'll just touch on it briefly. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, this is what it says. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now we're seeing another aspect of God. Now we're seeing God as judge. Now we're seeing God as holy and righteous and just. Now we're seeing God deeply offended by human sin, deeply grieved by human fallenness, but deeply in love with a fallen humanity. The four words that he uses to describe this fallen humanity are in this passage of Scripture. For the sake of time, I won't read it. We are powerless. 
We are ungodly. We are sinners, and we are enemies of God. If you want to summarize that, what it is actually saying is when God looks at a fallen humanity, a sinful humanity, he sees three things about us. What we've done is all wrong, because what we are is all wrong, and because what we are is all wrong, we've done what we've done, and we're going where we're going, and where we're going is all wrong. Is that clear? There will be a test. I'll give it to you again. We're going where we're going, that's away from God, because we've done what we've done. And we've done what we've done because we are what we are. And what we are is all wrong, and what we've done is all wrong, and where we're going is all wrong, and God loves us to distraction. He says, I don't want you to go that way. I want to be able to rescue you from divine wrath and judgment. I want to justify you, which means I want to deal with your sin and your waywardness and your fallenness, and I want to make you right with me. I want to put everything to rights for you. I want to declare you utterly forgiven. I want to announce to the world that you are reconciled to me and I'm reconciled to yours and you stand in a righteous relationship with me, justified. And this is what it says. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here we have it again. Whom he, predest whom he foreknew in love, he predestined to be like the son of his love. And he called them, and those he calls are the ones he loves. And those he called, he justifies. And he justifies us in love. For while we were yet sinners, in this condition of what we are is all wrong and what we've done is all wrong and where we're going is all wrong. He put it all right in love. But we need to press on. For then it says, for those he justified, he glorified. Now, here there's a big leap. He has leapt from the day, you in repentance and faith, Ask God for Jesus' sake to cleanse you and forgive you and be reconciled to you all that that in love he has offered you and you asked him to do it for you. That was the day you were justified. Now Paul says, as far as those he justified is concerned, the next thing on the agenda is they'll be glorified. That means they will enter into the glory. This, this word glory, it, it, the, the Hebrew word for glory, that's what's used in the Old Testament, it means literally weight or substance or quality. And the glory of God is the sheer substance of his character, the sheer quality of who he is. He is the great I am. He is the Holy One. He is the one who is greater than and grander than and more glorious than any other. 
He is utterly and totally distinct. He is the Lord. That's how we think of him. That's how, that's, that's how we think of him. And as we think of him in this way, we see who we are in comparison to who he is. And then we realize to our wondering eyes and our wondering hearts, how in the world can this Lord be compassionately concerned who can actually bear my sin in Christ on my behalf and declare me right with him and say, and when you come face to face with me in all my glory and find me in the eternity that I inhabit that is utterly glorious, that is full of my weight and my worth and my grandeur and my holiness and my purity and my greatness and my majesty, and you find my, yourself in those majestic circumstances, you will ask yourself the question, how in the world did I ever get here? And there'll be a simple four-letter word will answer the question, love. Love. But Paul, for some strange reason, has left a little piece out here. I think perhaps he left it out because he had spent chapters talking about it and didn't need to repeat it. But the word that is left out that belongs in between justified and glorified is sanctified. Sanctified. And sanctification is the process whereby God starts work on what he will finish in eternity. And what is the work that he starts now that he will finish in eternity? It is turning people like you and me, if you don't mind me saying so, people like you and me, taking people like we are and making us like Jesus is. Now, I, I don't know you, I'm not going to insult you, so I'll just talk about me. That is an enormous job, <laughs> making me as I am into who Je like Jesus is. It's a process that begins with justification and ends with glorification, and it takes every step of the way in between. And there are two key words that we need to realize, and I'm watching the clock very carefully here, and so this has to be very quick. There are two key words when it comes to sanctification. The one is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. It isn't just that God's in his heaven and Jesus died on the cross and the Holy Spirit is floating around somewhere. What it means is that when Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, the first thing he did was after being welcomed by the Father and heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus then asked the Father for something. He said, would you please send your spirit? I promised you would. And the spirit is, if you like, Jesus without his body. Jesus had explained it was better for the disciples that he would leave them 
and the Spirit would come than it would be if he stayed with them and they didn't get it. But what he explained was this, if I, by my Spirit, am dwelling here in my human body, then I'm limited by time and space. But if I'm released from my human body and in my eternal self, I'm not limited by time or by space, and I can indwell every one of you, wherever you are, on the seven continents. And I can be in touch with those who have gone to glory and those who are still on earth. And the Holy Spirit is Christ risen from the dead, living in us without his body and using our body. And as we begin to realize this, we begin to realize that the indwelling spirit is doing a work of transformation. And it's a loving work of transformation. It's making us more and more like his son whom he loves. Ask yourself a question. Am I experiencing the love of God in sanctification? Am I experiencing the love of God in justification? Am I anticipating and enjoying the love of God in his call? Am I experiencing the love of God in this knowledge of his predestinating work in my life? And I'm trying to grapple with the mystery of his love demonstrated in, in his foreknowledge. If so, you should be getting some little idea of what it's going to be like when you finally arrive there because I can't tell you what's going to happen. When you finally arrive in the glory, the place of majesty and value and worth and wonder, remember? When you finally arrive there, one or two things will happen. One is this. You'll see Jesus and the process of sanctification will be complete and you will be like him. Wow. <laughs> God says this, not only did he want us to be conformed to the image of his son, but he wants Jesus to be the firstborn of many brothers. In other words, he loves Jesus so much, he wants a whole lot more just like him. And he wants to populate something with a whole lot more just like Jesus. Do you know what he wants to populate? New heavens and new earth. Did you know that? He's going to make new heavens and new earth characterized by righteousness. And N.T. Wright again says this, that expression means that everything will be put to right. Things are not the way they ought to be is one of the things that everybody agrees on. Things are not the way they ought to be. Well, if we say things are not the way they ought to be, that means we assume there is a way things ought to be. Well, what is it? We don't know. But I'll tell you, there is a way things ought to be, and it hasn't happened yet, but it will. And it will happen when all the redeemed, all the redeemed, who have been experiencing the gracious, transforming work of sanctification, arrive and it is completed, and they see Jesus and are like him. And there are new heavens and a new earth. 
and the redeemed people are going to be given new bodies ideally suited to the new heavens and the new earth and we will be with God for all eternity, not sitting on pink edge clouds strumming a guitar, or excuse me, a harp. <laughs> we won't be doing that sprouting wings. There's going to be a new heaven and the new earth with an awful lot to do preserving it and protecting it and developing it and exploring it and discovering it and that's what you're going to spend all eternity doing and my time is up so I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. Lord, there are lots of mysteries we're talking about here and we do it unafraid and unabashed by it because we're talking about you. We'd be desperately disappointed if you would fit into our intellect. Educated and refined as they are, they're still fallen and limited. Creatures of time and space, we can't even grasp eternity. Thinking in terms of our fallenness, we can't think of the affront to your holiness. Thinking in terms of human relationships, we can't even begin to imagine the cost of forgiveness and redemption. We're so limited and you're so limitless, dear Lord. Open our eyes to your grandeur just a little bit more and give us a tremendous sense of anticipation of experiencing your love in heaven as we're experiencing it every step of the way here through the stages taking us there. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.